The reading of our sermon text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. It can also be found in your pew Bible on pages 808 and 809. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the coming wrath? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His wintering fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, every single one of us, and I put myself at the front of that line, needs a voice from heaven this morning. We need to hear a voice from heaven. We need you to address us about your son. We need you to speak directly to us about Jesus. Of how much you love him. Of how well pleased you are in him. And why you love him. And why you're well pleased in him. And we need your voice to turn our hearts toward him. So we ask you to come. We know you want to. And we expect you to do what we've asked. Because what we're asking is at the center of your heart. So build your children up. And save the lost, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you remember those uh, double sonic booms that we used to hear when the space shuttle would come back? I love those things. I mean, it didn't matter what you were doing. Uh, It didn't matter who you were talking to. It didn't matter how concentrated you were on whatever it was you were doing. Those double sonic booms, when they happened, they pushed themselves right to the front of your attention. And they made your houses rattle. Now, when Jesus enters our world, he enters with a pair of sonic booms also. And we see that in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, Jesus uh, brings us uh, two uh, equally shocking pieces of news. Jesus brings us the worst news that a human being could ever hear. We don't often think about it that way, but we ought to. Jesus brings us the news that we have dreaded the most in the deepest and the darkest places of our heart. He brings us the news that is the nightmare we fear and that we dread behind every criticism, 
behind every evaluation of us, behind every opinion of us, behind every snub, behind every failure we know we have been guilty of, behind every mistake we ever make, behind every shortcoming in us, behind every flaw that whether or not we admit it publicly in the deepest part of our hearts, we know that it's true. And the worst part of that bad news that Jesus gives us is that it's not a dream. That the reality is actually worse than our worst nightmare because the, the news that Jesus brings us is that we have been found wanting. The thing that we, the verdict that we have tried so desperately all our lives to escape, we have not eluded. And Jesus brings us that news. That we will not withstand the scrutiny of God. Our Creator, to whom we owe everything, and everything that we are, and everything that we have, comes from Him. And Jesus announces in this first sonic boom that we have not earned His favor, but exactly the opposite, His condemnation. And yet, in the very same breath, Jesus Christ brings us the best news that a human being could ever hear. The, the news that's sweeter than our sweetest dream. It's the, it's the aroma. It's the beauty. It's the delight that's behind every compliment. That's behind every praise that we receive. Behind every encouragement. That's behind every welcome. Every acceptance. Every taste of approval that we get. This, this beautiful approval and verdict of acceptance and value that that we seek for all our lives in countless ways. And the amazing thing is that Jesus confirms that the reality is so much sweeter than our best dream that we've held in the deepest places of our hearts. He brings us the news that we have been loved with a love that will never be extinguished, that we have been embraced with an eternal embrace, that we have been welcomed with an eternal welcome by someone who will never fail us, who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. The love that we have sought all our lives and never found has found us. In Jesus. And Jesus brings both of those messages to us this morning from Matthew 3. Matthew uh, skips from Jesus' childhood straight into his adulthood. He cannot wait to tell us about Jesus' public ministry. And as he does it, as he opens... Uh, his account of our Lord's public ministry. He does it with two uh, shocking uh, sonic booms, as it were. Uh, although Matthew wouldn't have known what that was. He, know, he knew what they felt like because he heard them in Jesus. And he felt them in Jesus. And, and there are two sonic booms that, that, that announce the coming of God's kingdom. And one of the booms, if you will, uh, comes from John the Baptist and the other comes from our Lord himself. This chapter breaks down into two divisions. Uh, the first is the crisis of the kingdom. That's verses one through two. These are our headings. The crisis of the kingdom, verses one through twelve. And that's that we hear through John. And then the solution of the kingdom, uh, verses 13 through 17. And that's uh, what Jesus brings. So let's look first at the crisis of the kingdom. And John's message has two equally shocking parts. I don't know if you felt it as Paul was reading the text, but there are two pieces of news that John brings together. And the first is that God's kingdom has come. Now, that's a shocker. And the second piece is that men are unprepared for that kingdom. So let's look first at 
uh, the news that the kingdom of God has come. When Matthew uh, summarizes uh, John's preaching in verse two, he summarizes he summarizes it this way. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you might uh, your your warning flags may have gone off already because in the other uh, gospels, uh, predominantly what's described is the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing. Matthew is uh, writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And so as uh, as someone who's sensitive uh, to the scruples of uh, people who've grown up in Judaism, he's reluctant to use the name God out of uh, fear of dishonoring it. And so he uses this expression, kingdom of heaven. But it's the same thing as kingdom of God. And you'll actually see later on in Matthew's gospel that he uses these two terms interchangeably. It's a bit like how we will sometimes use the expression the White House when we mean the president, the one who dwells there. The place, the dwelling place is sometimes used as a substitute for the one who dwells there in the same way that kingdom of heaven means the kingdom of God. But what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? And what does it mean that John is telling his hearers and us that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, why is he talking as if it had only recently arrived? Because honestly, when you read the Old Testament, you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't even have to go out of the Psalms. I mean, the Lord reigns, Psalm 93 verse 1, or Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. That's not a future thing. That's a present thing. So what's John doing? What's, what does he mean by this idea of the kingdom of God? Well, what he's talking about is something that, that the prophets have uh, been predicting for centuries. And that is that even though God has been, is, always will be, there's never been a point in which he wasn't ac- actually king over everything. There's a new phase in God's assertion of his kingly rights. That God is coming nearer and more obviously and closer than he ever has been. To make the reality of his reign and the reality of his kingship and the reality of his majesty and the reality of all his rights over all things, to make those things more unmistakable, he's approaching in a new way. That's what John is saying. And I tried to think of an analogy for this that would make sense. And I was sitting in our living room uh, working on the sermon at, the, at our uh, dining room table and I thought, oh, I know exactly an analogy. I'm the king of my house, right? Don't laugh. I'm the king of my house. There's a kingly code in our house. And when our kids were younger, they lived downstairs. We let them occasionally come upstairs. They lived downstairs. One of the rules we had is no squabbling with one another. Now, sometimes, now, what do you want to bet that that worked perfectly? Okay. And sometimes I would be seated at the table in the living room and there would be squabbling downstairs and I would send my voice. Now, my kids know what the rule is in the house and they know that at least on paper, uh, I'm the authority in the house. And so I would send my voice as a messenger to remind them of what was always true. And sometimes it would stop. But sometimes it didn't. And then I would personally appear in the midst of the squabble. Now, think about that. My presence didn't change the amount of authority I had in in the house, did it? But what it changed was their recognition of that authority and their sense of how near it was to them. That's what John's talking about. You see, John's message is the message that had been in the prophets for centuries. This news that a great day was coming, a day that the prophets usually referred to as the day of the Lord. Sometimes it would be known as the last days. 
when the Lord himself would would come to his creation in a new way, in greater fullness. He wouldn't just send his voice through a prophet, but he would personally appear. And on that day, two great things would happen because God had come. One, judgment. Judgment upon the enemies of God. And two, blessing for the people of God. And you notice, John has all those themes together, doesn't he? John is talking about the reality that that's no longer a future day. That day has come. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That invasion, that retaking of the earth, that reassertion of God's rights over what rightfully and has always rightfully belonged to him, that coming has begun in a way that D-Day uh, was the beginning of the invasion. But it was an invasion that continued and continued and continued. And John is saying that day that has been long awaited and long prophesied has now come. And so that means the king is here. The king. And two things are going to happen. When he comes, he's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Blessing. And he's going to baptize with fire. Judgment. And he's got two tools of judgment. John's very graphic. Some of the most uh, compelling pictures of the reality of judgment in the entire Bible are in John the Baptist's preaching. And it's interesting that Jesus, and I want you to know this, if you're not familiar with Jesus, and if you think that basically the Old Testament gives us this picture of a, of a, of a God of wrath, and the New Testament gives us a picture of a God of love, it's wrong. And one of the ways we know that so clearly is that Jesus adopts all of John's preaching and doesn't correct any of it. And John has this picture that when the king comes, he's going to sort humanity. Do you see that? He's going to baptize some with the Holy Spirit for blessing, eternal blessing, and some with fire, an unquenchable fire, eternal results, an eternal sorting. And this king, John says, is going to carry two tools of sorting, two tools of judgment. One is an axe. Do you see that in verse 10? How he says, even now, that's how close it is, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. That's not a pruning job. That's not a picture of pruning to increase fruitfulness. That's a picture of the end of the road, the exhaustion of God's mercy, the end of his patience. And then the second image that John uses, and I dwell on these friends because we need to feel them. We need to feel the seriousness of the context into which our Lord comes. You can't understand His ministry. You can't understand the cross unless you understand God's evaluation of the world and His kingly rights over the world and all who dwell in it. And John's second image is that this great baptizer will come with a winnowing fork. The grain would be piled and the winnowing fork, the, the winnower takes the fork and throws the grain up in the air and the wind separates the wheat from the chaff. And you notice there's two results, only two, only two options, just like with a tree, either bear fruit or you're cut at the root. You're either wheat that the harvester, the king comes and puts in his barn or you are chaff and burned in unquenchable fire. Now, it's a very sobering picture of the kingdom's coming. And before I go on to the second shock in John's uh, preaching that, that, uh, that we're unprepared for the kingdom's coming, I just want to pause and just want to make a couple of uh, dot connections with implications that are at the heart of things that Christianity affirms that we see in John's preaching. And the first one is this. It's not a new point, but we need to revisit it again. The assumption of John's preaching, the assumption of the whole idea of the kingdom of God coming is this, that the world is God's. Verse 
He's not invading what doesn't belong to him. He's laying his claim to what has already and always and only been his. John acts like the world is God's. We act like the world is our own. John acts like our lives belong to God. We act like our lives belong to us. And biblically, this is not a debatable topic. God's not coming in as a consultant. He's not coming in as an ally. He's not coming in as a just kind of a, a an earnest but ultimately non-sovereign persuader or coach to try to coax us back onto the path that we have wandered from. He's not coming to be this this uh, co uh, this joint venture with us in the in the project of building a utopia here on earth. He's coming as owner. But secondly, the coming of God's kingdom also means this, that the world is not as it was, not as it should be, and not as it will be. See, we act, well, John John acts, and John's assumption is a biblical assumption, which is that the world is terribly broken and fractured and cannot from within itself fix what's broken and fractured about it. Men have ruined the world and cannot repair it. Only God who made it can remake it. And the wonderful thing is that when John announces that the kingdom has come, it means that though we've given him every reason to, God is not going to walk away from the world. It's an amazing picture. But it's even more amazing when you get to the second part of John's message, and it is that men aren't ready for that. We're unprepared for the kingdom. And you know that instantly. Because what's, how does John's message begin? If you, if you, make it, if you uh, reverse it, if you reverse his message, the logic goes this way. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, comma, what should we do? Repent. Not rejoice, uh, not prepare him a place at the table, uh, not uh, put our best uniform on, not expect reward and blessing. No, the news that the kingdom is here is necessarily news that no one is ready for God's arrival. Uh, No one, absolutely no one. And anyone who thinks that he is doesn't know God and doesn't know himself if you think about the Old Testament, think about some of the stories where, where, uh, where there's been, a, and if you can think back to our Sunday night uh, studies in the fall, where we looked at, at uh, encounters between God and a person. And you know what? No one's ready for an encounter with God. Think about Moses. Moses, who's been up on the mountain uh, for, for days with the Lord, enveloped in the cloud of his glory, When Moses asks God to show him his glory, God says, I can't I can't show it to you unless I hide you from myself. You can only see my backside. Otherwise, you'll die. Or Isaiah, when he's in the temple, when he sees the Lord, the first thing he says is not, I knew it. He says, woe is me, for I am undone. See, the only reason we would be resistant to John's call, John's news, that because the kingdom of God is here, because it's being asserted now, the only reason that we would resist his call to repent in light of that news is because our view of God is too low and our view of ourselves is too high. Repentance is very interesting in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The different facets of what that means uh, are emphasized in different ways in the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, the main word that's used for repentance has to do with turning. Not just veering, but turning around. A reversal of direction. A radical reversal of direction. And in the New Testament, the main word that's used for repentance has to do with the mind. 
Literally, it means after mind. In other words, a new mind. Both of these images are underlying what John is calling us to because of the kingdom. And they both picture that because the kingdom has come, the first implication of that is that our lives need to be radically reoriented. Because our lives, the reality of our lives, is not in alignment with the reality of God. This might be a a good and fruitful place to pause. To reflect on that in each of our lives. See, God, because He's King, has the right to set the standard. And God, because He's King, is actually right now applying that standard to every heart in this room. And there is only one way to withstand that scrutiny. It is to flee in repentance and humble faith for shelter in Jesus Christ, the only man who has ever lived who was not found wanting by that great king. Now, it would be one thing. It would be a shocker if that was the end of John's message. What? The kingdom of God's coming is not necessarily good news for us? I thought we were pretty good. I mean, we're not as bad as them. And particularly if you were an Israelite in the first century, you'd say, hey, listen, we're the chosen people. I mean, come on. And we've, we were in slavery. For 400 years in Egypt, and we went through the Exodus, and we came and we settled in the Promised Land. And boy, these pagans, they corrupted us, and we eventually got deported in, in uh, the exile. These Gentile pagans took us away, and they kept us from coming back to the Promised Land. Oh my goodness, I am so glad you showed up, God, so that those Gentiles, those people who are not members of the covenant, so they have to repent. Finally, you're here to tell them that they're wrong. But you notice everyone who comes to John is a Jew. Everyone John is talking to is an Israelite. Everyone that John is preaching to is a member of the covenant people of God. That's not what we would expect. The people who are being baptized, the only people who are being baptized, the only people who are being called to repent in John's ministry are not Gentiles, but Jews. The covenant people who for millennia have had the name upon them that we are sons of Abraham, who've had the scriptures, who've had, who have been, let me put it this way, who have been the most spiritually advantaged people in all the earth and it's in that bullseye it's in that spiritual inner circle that God through John sends the news of his kingdom's coming and says to that inner circle you need to repent and as evidence of your repentance you need to be baptized now that's that's astonishing it doesn't hit us with the force that it should because we, we mostly don't know that the only people who were being baptized in the first century were Gentile converts to Judaism. Because they didn't want to be circumcised. So what do you do? Well, you baptize them. And so you see what that means? It's so radical is the call to repentance. And so radical is the reorientation that John is pressing upon the people that even the covenant people themselves say, you know what, we can't rely on our heritage. We can't rely on the family we grew up in. We can't rely on the fact that we have uh, the scriptures. We can't rely on the fact that it's through us that God intends and has promised to bless the nations. No. In fact, we 
we are acknowledging in our repentance not only what we've done wrong, but that we have failed to live up to the meaning of what our heritage is. And so we are going to repudiate that heritage in the sense that we regard it as a reliance or a badge of honor. And we're going to identify ourselves through baptism to be equivalent to those who are not the covenant people. We, the covenant people, are acknowledging that we are not from our hearts the covenant people. And then the Sadducees and the Pharisees show up. Now later on in Matthew, Jesus, when he's boxing and winning with the scribes and the elders, is going to say, listen, when John came preaching righteousness, he didn't believe him. And the tax collectors and the prostitutes, therefore, are going to get into the kingdom before you. And I'm sure that Matthew took great delight in that, being a tax collector himself. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees come up. Well, who are they? Well, they're, they're not just Israelites. They're the cream of the crop of Israel. And what's odd is that they're together because they're natural enemies. The Pharisees are the religious conservatives. The Sadducees are the religious liberals. And notice, they're together. Now, people like that don't agree. They don't agree about anything. Think about it in our own day. This would be like a King James only with a mainline Protestant. That's not going to go well. And yet, they're together. And not only are they together, but John, you notice John, I'm sure the Pharisees were just crushed by this. I'm sure the Pharisees were up there going, yeah, you finally get religion, don't you, Mr. Sadducee? And then John comes and says, he lumps them together. You notice this? He says, you brood of vipers. Because John knows, I think, that they both are operating from presumption. That's why he says uh, what he says about sons of Abraham. He says, listen, don't, don't, don't claim. Don't presume to say we're sons of Abraham. We don't need to worry about the wrath to come because we're already on the right side. God, if he wanted to, is, and he's going to actually, he's going to raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. What, the, what unites the Pharisees and the Sadducees together in John's evaluation is that both, but from different ends of a spectrum, are seeking to pursue their own righteousness. They're both relying on their lives and the quality of their lives to be good enough for God to owe them. Now, I would say that most of our church, if it could identify with either one of those poles, the end of the spectrum, I, I, don't, think, I don't think we're at the Sadducee side of the spectrum. I think we're more at the Pharisee side of the spectrum in the sense coming from a commitment to God's word, a life where at least we acknowledge that that God exists, that his word binds the conscience and therefore we need to live in a way that reflects the reality of God. But friends, you know, we can, each of us, pastors included, can be guilty of exactly the same sort of presumption. My theology is right. Look at my life. The bottom line is, what are you going to say to God when you appear before him when he shows up downstairs? Are you living like you think that the quality of your life puts God in your debt so that he has to give you rescue? The Sadducees and the Pharisees are together on this point. They're both committed to their own self-righteousness. It's exactly what Paul describes at the beginning of Romans 10 when he says that being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own righteousness. Oh, friends, nothing that you or I do in our lives is good enough for this king. And I know that feels like bad news. And it is bad news in a sense. But it's the best news you could ever get because you know. You know. That you're too weak, too inconsistent. To be good enough in yourself. You fail too much. Your heart's too divided. 
There are things that you have not been able to get out of your life. And there are things that in your own power, you can't get them into your life. You need help from the outside. You need a record that you didn't write, but which is given to you by another. You and I aren't any more ready in ourselves for the coming of this kingdom than the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. You see, what, what the irony of what happens here is that the people who regard themselves as morally, as religiously successful, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the people who think that they're prepared for the kingdom, John and later Jesus will say, you're the unprepared. Because, because your center of gravity, your hope is in yourself. And the people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the people who are willing to acknowledge that they're unprepared, the morally unsuccessful, those people who are willing to own that, who don't try to drag the standard of God's holiness down to the level of their performance, so it's within their reach, but people who acknowledge that the gap between how we live and who God is is an infinite gap, people who are willing to acknowledge that, those people get in. Now, I just got to tell you, that's one of the things about Christianity that should make every one of us the freest people in our lives. There should be joy that no trial can extinguish. There should be a gratitude to God that no difficulty during the week can swamp. There should be a desire to go after God, to know Him, to love Him, to commend Him to others that nothing can stop because of that truth. Because Christianity right here through John and through Jesus' ministry is the fulfillment of what John's talking about. Puts a stake down the ground and says, here's the uniqueness of the gospel. No one is prepared for God, but God will prepare you in the person of His Son, as a gift to be received by faith. Hallelujah! Because He is the King, the world is His, and everyone who lives in the world belongs to Him already, whether they acknowledge it or not. How holy must God be, friends? How holy, how righteous must God be if when His kingdom comes, He sends His prophet into the midst of the covenant people, the most spiritually advantaged people, the most spiritually invested in people, the most spiritually blessed people on the planet Earth, steps into that heritage and says, not good enough for me. How holy must God be? What additional argument, friends, could God give us to pry our trust away from things that we do? And not just to pry it away, but to cause us to mourn over the fact that we have trusted in the works of our hands as though God somehow were served like an idol by the things that creatures can produce. He's God. If you stop and think about it for two seconds, you'll know that's crazy. Luke and I were on the beach last night in New Smyrna. And we're, it was great. No one was there. We were walking on the beach and, you know, normally when you go to the beach, you don't have a sense for how long. The beach is long. There's a lot of sand on the beach. And we were walking. We walked for, you know, 45 minutes one way and 45 minutes back the other way. And just the whole time, you could just you had this unimpeded line of sight down the beach. It looked like it went on forever. And I kept looking at the distance and then look at the grains of sand. I'm like, there is so much sand on this beach. God is so big. And that's nothing. That's nothing. And in light of that greatness, how sinful must we be? You know, in Isaiah, excuse the vulgarity here, but this is in Scripture. In Isaiah 64, 6, when God looks at his people, he says, your best deeds are garments of menstruation. Filthy rags. That's how 
holy God is. And that's how unholy even our best deeds are. That's shocking. But it's not nearly as shocking as what comes next. That crisis and how it's resolved. The solution of the kingdom. I want you to look at verse 13 with me, friends. Uh, I'm convinced that verse 13. Now, two months from now, it might be a different verse, okay? So I'll grant you that. Maria and the kids, they, they call me Mr. Ranker because I love to rank things. Well, verse 13, to me, for, for several months now, has been the, perhaps the most shocking verse in the entire Bible to me. Because think about it. John has just described this amazing king whose, whose sandal he is not worthy even to pick up. Who, who's going to come with his winnowing fork. Who's going to baptize with fire and with a spirit who John says is mightier than I. And then the very next thing that Matthew reports is the exact opposite of what we would expect Jesus. We're expecting Jesus to come in on his, on his white charger and he comes in from Galilee. And he says to John, you need to baptize me. And John, John goes, what? Wait, 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 wait. Were you not here for my sermon yesterday? What I said about you is true. You're that. And Jesus isn't disagreeing. He says, yes, I'm that. But I'm more than that. You need to baptize me. Now, why? Why? John says, that's wrong. That's upside down. That's not fitting. You're the Lord, you're the King, you're the Mighty One, you're the Winnower, you're the Baptizer, and you are coming to be baptized. What? That's, help me understand that. And Jesus says, it's fitting that we do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. Verse 15. Well, now, what does that mean? But Jesus clearly isn't saying that he's a sinner. He doesn't have any sin to repent of. He's holy. So it can't be that Jesus has to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness on his own behalf so that he might be prepared for the coming of the kingdom because he's already prepared. So it's not for himself that he's baptized. It's for others. It's to fulfill all righteousness on behalf of others that he's baptized He has come to John for baptism, not because he is not ready for the kingdom of God, but because he knows that others are not ready. Now, friends, I have to tell you that this this just completely sweeps me off my feet. It just the the how God has used this sequence of events to draw my own heart out in wonder and awe over these last several weeks. I, 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 just, I just commend this sequence of events to you to ponder, to meditate upon, to wonder over, to sit at the edge of and say, you, like John, to join John in saying, what kind of God are you who would be as holy as you are, as Rightfully the owner of all things as you are, as perfectly entitled as you are to winnow all of humanity and to render final judgment that you, that high and holy one, would come and submit to baptism for my sake. Oh, I'm confident that if you do that, your heart will be drawn out with a renewed love for our Lord Jesus. Because He has come, what we see through His baptism is that He has come uh, not to prepare Himself and not even just to tag along on John's, uh, on John's ministry. Remember, John's message is, hey, the kingdom of heaven is here. So you guys got to get ready. And the way you get ready is you repent. Jesus isn't saying 
hey, I agree with John and just want to add my voice to his. No, what Jesus is saying is he is coming not for himself and not merely to add to John's message and and add his voice saying, yeah, you need to prepare. Jesus is coming to be the preparation of mankind. You see, he is coming by submitting to baptism for others. He is demonstrating that from the very beginning of his ministry, it's going to be about one thing. It's going to be about embodying and providing the preparation for all men, women, and children for the kingdom of God. And I would say to you that if you are cynical about who God is, you need to think about that. That will set your mind and heart aflame that the God against whom you and I have rebelled and and we've acted as though we were the owners of the earth, that God sends His Son, comes personally in the person of His Son to make us ready for the full coming of His kingdom. Friends, that's amazing. The one for whose coming we need to prepare has come to give himself in order to prepare us fully for the coming of the kingdom by his life and his death. Now, just think about that, friends. John tells us about a great axeman who is coming when the kingdom comes. And that axeman is going to bring the holy acts of God's judgment against the unfruitful tree. And Jesus Christ was, he was the Psalm 1 man. He was the tree in Psalm 1 whose, whose roots were in the law of God day and night and who, who is the only man who, who led a fruitful life, whose life produced a pure harvest for God. And he did that all for us. He did that so you and I, and any who trust in Him, there would be a harvest that could be shared, that could be entered into, that could be presented to God on behalf of any who would trust Him. That perfect life. John announces the coming of this great axeman. And Jesus comes not to wield the axe, but to have the axe of His Father's judgment wielded against the roots of His life. So that the fruit of His life could be given and reckoned to our account. John announces the coming of the great winnower. The one who would sort through all humanity. And Jesus, when he comes the first time, he does not come to do the winnowing. He comes to be winnowed on the cross. The one who was the only pure. There was one had one grain of wheat that grew up from the poison soil of the earth, like a root that grew out of dry ground, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. One perfect grain of wheat. Everything else was chaff. And when Jesus comes the first time, his baptism shows us that when he comes the first time, he comes not to be harvested and put in God's barn, but he comes to be rejected as the chaff on the cross and to endure God's judgment. He comes, friends, as the great baptizer, John says, but he he comes not to baptize others with fire, but on the cross to be baptized himself with the fire of God's judgment. Do you see, my friends, That the kingdom of God has come and no one is ready for it. And Jesus comes and submits himself to baptism so that he amazingly might be the preparation adequate and sufficient and glorious for all who will trust in them and turn from their sins. No wonder the father says what he says about him. Don't you understand now why the father cannot contain himself, but just breaks through shreds the, 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 the gap between heaven and earth and speaks through that gap and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Can't you understand why He loves Him so much? Can't you understand now why He is so well pleased in Him? And can't you understand now better why the Father is so relentlessly passionate that we join Him in His opinion of the Son? 
Oh, what a gift. What a wonder. You see, Jesus, when he comes, he comes with those two messages, doesn't he? He comes with our worst nightmare that we have dreaded, that's lurking behind every criticism and every fear of failure that we have. And the reality is, in his life of suffering and his bearing the judgment of God, He's showing us that that nightmare is not a nightmare. The reality is far worse apart from Christ. But he also comes with that second sonic boom, that boom of God's mercy, that boom of God's voice saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If you join me in my opinion of him, I will be well pleased in you. You will know my love as my children, just as he knows my love as my son. So turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Friends, even now, even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. This is not a theory. But God, God's coming has begun. God's coming is continuing. And one day it will come in full. And we don't know when that day will be. So the most urgent thing that you and I, I don't care how old you are, and I don't care how long you've been in the church, and neither does God, by the way. What matters is what you do with His Son. When you hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, you either, there are only two options. You either walk away from Him or you walk toward Him. May God grant us ears to hear his pleasure in his son, and hearts to join him there. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how good you are, how amazing it is that you, in response to who we are, would send your son to not just tell us to prepare and not just show us how to prepare, but to actually be that preparation. Give that fruit in our place and to be the one who's baptized willingly with the fire of your judgment so that we might be baptized with the spirit of your blessing eternally. How we bless you with great thanksgiving this morning for him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.